Welcome to Accelerated, my podcast on the cross-section of technology, capital, and the world we live in. On this episode, my guest is Dave Choi, an entrepreneur, TED organizer, and speaker, and a well-regarded disinformation researcher. If you are a current or a future startup founder or have one in your life, I wrote a book for you. After many years in the trenches and on all sides of the table in Silicon Valley, I wrote Accelerated Startup as a minefield guide to help founders save a lot of headache and heartache those first critical few years. You can get Accelerated Startup on Amazon, iBooks, or Audible. If you're new to the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on YouTube or in your favorite podcast app. Now put on your seatbelts and we're about to enter the deep dark world of online disinformation and misinformation and psyops. Dave Troy is a entrepreneur, speaker and disinformation researcher based in Baltimore, Maryland. He was uh, the first to use the Twitter API, and his data visualization work has been featured in the Museum of Modern Art and at TED. He co-curates TEDx Mid-Atlantic in Washington, D.C., where many of his speakers have been Washington insiders. As his day job, he is the CEO of 410 Labs, maker of the email tools Maelstrom and Chuck. Dave's work on disinformation intersects sociology, network science, and political science. So please help me welcome Dave. Hey there, Vitaly. It's great to be here. Thanks for being here, Dave. So let's dive right in. Um, I know you have a fascinating story. We've known each other for for many years now. Um, Let's start at the beginning with your first tech company and how you became a techie. Yeah, sure. So um, I first started getting involved with, you know, computers and programming kind of, you know, with the Apple II generation. I was more on the Atari side, but I started my first company at about age 14, started selling computers and software and stuff in high school. Uh, that then evolved uh, to being selling that stuff on the internet uh, in like 1993-94 time frame. And um, that in turn led me to get involved with uh, internet infrastructure and started an ISP and hosting company around 95 time frame. Then grew that, uh, added in a uh, telephone company, uh, was involved in the founding of that um, in the late 90s uh, after the passage of the Telecom Act of 96. And then grew that business uh, gradually uh, until 2004 when I sold it. Um, so that was kind of my first entrepreneurial journey from like, you know, age uh, 16 to uh, 14 to 30, basically 32. And then uh, from there, uh, started doing a lot of work in, uh, you know, kind of emerging technologies around voice over IP. I did some work in Europe and in Brazil on that. Um, and then uh, from there, I got involved with Twitter. Uh, right in the early days of that. So as you mentioned, I was the first person to use the Twitter API and did a project called Twitter Vision that was a real-time visualization of all the traffic on Twitter, which at the time wasn't very much. Um, so that was kind of fun to see the, that be birthed. And I got to know Jack Dorsey and Biz Stone and that whole crew uh, during that time. And then, um, you know, in the intervening years, I've started another company called 410 Labs. We make two products. One is called Chuck, which is an iOS app for managing email a lot more efficiently. And the other is called Maelstrom, which is a web-based tool that works similarly. It's a little bit different in focus, but um, they're both designed to help people deal with email overload. And then, you know, along the way, I've also been engaged with uh, civics. So, you know, dealing with things like our political landscape. Uh, understanding the intersection between technology and politics. And that has really led to a deep uh, engagement on, uh, you know, social media disinformation, 
um, you know, how a society can be manipulated, which of course you can't really understand that stuff without also trying to understand social psychology, uh, political science, um, you know, those kinds of dynamics. So it's, it's been an interesting ride over the last four years in particular. Thanks for that background. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, just like many, many guys are our age, it seems, or, you know, we're, we're a little, a few years apart, but I also started very young as a little BBS nerd Yep. Uh, back in the day. Yeah, and, totally uh, BBS in my case. Yeah. And, and, a, and a lot of, uh, you know, guys these, these days in their, let's say, 40s, all started with kind of hacking around the internet and the early internet, and many have gone on to build interesting companies, like uh, Jan Kuhn comes to mind. He was part of that group with uh with uh the um the politician um who was also part of the hacking group in the in the 90s right so um so let's talk a little bit about kind of how twitter was in the early days and um i think it's a really interesting story of you know these days people consider twitter this behemoth even though it's you know in valuation it's like one sixteenth the size of facebook something like that um, what was it like and, uh, what was it like to kind of see that develop and, and kind of really catch fire and become what, you know, it, it, well, it was, it was very interesting. I mean, I think, you know, it, it was interesting to me because it was filled with kind of early adopter types and, you know, it was sort of the first single platform global network that was sort of easily accessible and programmable from the standpoint of trying to understand the data sets. So my initial inquiry was like, well, you know, I'm here. I'm looking at this. Who else is here and looking at this? Why are they here? Are they people that I know? Are they people that I should have known? Um, so I started looking at kind of the people in my geography, you know, around Baltimore, Washington area, and trying to understand, you know, what their motives were, what what kinds of cliques formed within that uh, construct construct and um you know kind of like where this thing was heading and i think the thing that probably characterizes the earliest days of twitter the most is just that it was not very well uh used you know people were um you know very rarely participating in any kind of volume the people that were were kind of a cast of regulars it was kind of like you know, kind of like something like clubhouses today where, you know, it's kind of known mostly to kind of tech people and it's kind of cliquey right. and that kind of thing. And so it went from being that to, you know, I always think of the Clay Shirky book, Here Comes Everybody, you know, <laughs> and then everybody joins in and it becomes something else through like emergent effects. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think that um, it, it's taken a long time to get it to where it is now. And I don't know that it's, it's better now. I think that it, in a lot of ways, not a lot of thought was given to the design. So, you know, the emergent effects that have occurred have been mostly negative um, rather than being positive things. So, yeah, I mean, there's certainly a few different eras in, in Twitter and social media uh, development in the last decade. Um, I think it was a really big, um, big awakening to this whole group of companies that grew around Twitter ecosystem. And then one day Twitter decided to say that there's not going to be any third party applications and all of that started killing off that whole ecosystem i remember that was a a big issue um at what point i mean you know it it, it kind of uh, realized twitter itself realized that it became kind of some important communication method um at what point you know did you watch this and kind of see all these other forces coming from non-tech to use this platform uh for a lot of different purposes yeah i mean i think Part of it was the the evolution towards doing an IPO um, because I think that there was a sense that like they had no real business model, 
Um, and they hadn't developed, you know, sort of the ad model yet. They didn't really have a large enough user base to really monetize well. So they were kind of just burning cash, you know, very rapidly. And there was a pressure, you know, I think to go public in order to relieve that pressure and, and give them more runway. But at the same time, you know, they were also very reluctant to crack down on what I would call, you know, either inauthentic activity on the platform or just straight up fraudulent activity on the platform in terms of people making accounts that weren't real. So I think that there was a pressure for them to inflate their user numbers um, mm -hmm. that, um, you know, led to kind of a culture of sleight of hand at the company a little bit. And I don't think it was intentional. I don't think that people were like trying to mislead per se, but just there's, it's kind of like, there's a, always a pressure to kind of like say the most optimistic thing you possibly right. can, especially in the context of an S1 or something like that. So, um, you know, I think that that has led to kind of where we are now, where they are incented to kind of have as many live uh, accounts on the platform as possible um which they, means in, that, they're out there glossing over all these bots and all this this cesspool yeah, that exists on exactly there, yeah. and they never really addressed that problem in any kind of serious way um you know obviously they're now doing stuff to take down networks of accounts that are coordinated and whatever but you know i mean is that enough did they start soon enough are they doing as much as they could now you don't really know you know like it, they're sort of walking this fine line between doing something to address the problem but also not put out numbers that make it seem like their, you know, monthly actives are dropping too much. So it's kind yeah. of, you know, a fine. Yeah, and, and I mean, you have an, an interesting insight because you've seen this develop and you, you know, the team, um, you know, you know, Jack and him being a part-time CEO, I, I think a lot of people have identified as problematic with something that's supposedly so important in our communication sphere. Um, you know, does this reflect his personality? I know he's kind of changed and found, you know, enlightenment in these years, but uh, this kind of wild, wild uh, internet, is that something that you would say is compatible with his personality? Well, you know, I don't want to disparage a friend. And I, yeah. you know, uh, think that, you know, he's put out plenty of public statements to kind of explain what it is he thinks he's doing. I would just say that I think that, you know, he maybe you know, has a certain personality of like um, wanting things to kind of turn out for the best and kind of looking for, you know, the best outcomes and um, kind of thinking that, you know, with the lightest possible touch, the, the better outcome can be achieved. I think mm -hmm. that might be the most subtle way I could say it. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, this whole situation with him and Square is probably a little bit of fairy tale storytelling on the part of the boards of both yeah. of those companies. Like, I, I have a hard time understanding how a board could reach the conclusion that that's the best answer um, for, for both companies. So, you know, you have to ask yourself how much of that is kind of um, the land of make believe and storytelling versus, you know, the, what's really going on and what's best for the companies. But, um, you know, I guess yeah, I would chalk it up into the uh, the, the famous uh, uh, made up story about the pest dispensers on eBay, right? That that was right. the uh, origin story. Yeah, that, exactly. Probably on yeah, the every company needs this mythology, and, and the mythology right now is that Jack Dorsey is you know uh, a, a super genius and can run two two major companies, um, two major public companies, and that seems you know perhaps perhaps ambitious. ambitious. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know. so if you were if you were to run uh, Twitter, I mean, you're an experienced entrepreneur most of your life. You were CEO running different companies. What would how would you fix it? What would you change? Yeah, I mean, I think um, 
you know, first off, my experience is with much, much smaller companies. So I feel a little bit, you know, talking out of turn to some extent to, you know, sort of make suggestions for companies that big. However, um, you know, I think the fundamentals really just need to boil down to, you know, kind of focusing on uh, telling the truth, you know, making sure that the platform, you know, has as much truth and sort of, I don't mean so much, you know, facts. I mean, like, are the people that are on the platform really who they say they are? And so start to work more towards verifying identities of as many people as possible. You know, this whole idea of like all these little people with the little blue check marks, which, you know, I've never pursued uh, for myself. You know, it's kind of like there's a tiny fraction of people that have that designation yep. on Twitter. And it leads to this kind of free for all landscape where people can just kind of do whatever they want. The other thing is, I think that. I've come to see Twitter a little bit like a an alternate reality game or a re, just a game of, of a sort where um, it encourages you to sort of withdraw into bubbles of like-mindedness that um, I think are generally unhealthy for society. And so I would start to look at the design effects of the platform on society. Basically, the idea being if you can affect the, the texture of society with tools like this, then you are able to program society effectively. So the question would then be, what kind of society should we program our society to be? What do we want to program our society to do? And how do we do that ethically? And I just don't think that that feedback loop has been given sufficient thought. So I would start to move in that direction of like, what kind of effect do we want? Do we as Twitter want to have on society? And, you know, you've heard Mark Zuckerberg say, you know, um, we're going to, uh, you know, connect everybody and everything's going to be great just because everybody's connected. And, you know, I think we can see that that's not true. <laughs> you know, it's objectively a bad idea. So, you know, you clearly have to do more than, than just connect everybody. So then the question is what and, you know, what things might we do to uh, create a healthier society versus a sicker society? Yeah, I mean, so let's talk about that for a second. I mean, uh, ultimately, the stakes have gone through the roof, right? Before it was, okay, our kids are spending too much time, wasting too much time, let's say, on social media. But now the stakes are, are real life. You know, you have uh, protests in, in Wisconsin right now, right, right, as we're recording this. And uh, some groups of idiots have organized themselves, apparently, in the Facebook group, which resulted with a 17-year-old with a rifle uh, shooting three people, killing two last night. Yep. Yeah. Um, there's real it, world it, consequences. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, if we kind of skip ahead a couple of steps here, there's a lot of talk about the potential for TikTok being dangerous platform and uh, being kind of this, this uh, malware from China. And famously, Zuck had this dinner with Trump at the White House and said that it's, it's, uh, it's China or Facebook support us and, and ban TikTok which was kind of a genius um, genius business move, right? To kill this competition. But, you know, in, in your view, and I'm sure you've thought about this, um, can you kind of compare the the potential, you know, the, the negative potential of TikTok besides the time wasting, you know, watching videos um, and not being productive, but the danger there versus the active measures that we've already seen for years on Facebook and Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I think there is some reason for concern. And well before Zuck or Trump or anybody else was mentioning this, certainly people in the inf information security and national security world were talking about how this could be a potential danger because, you know, something like TikTok is capturing high resolution facial data. Um, it, you know, has the potential to capture social graphs. It has the potential to capture location information. It was doing stuff like pasting from the clipboard from other apps. 
So, you know, there's a lot of potential kind of technical vector uh, threat there that I think, you know, is, is real. I think, you know, we have to evaluate this, though, within the framework of U.S. law and the First Amendment. And, you know, we have to actually say, what do we think the threat is here, really? And if so, if there is a threat that's deemed, how do we want to best address it? Now, the fact that, you know, they were violating effectively terms of service of things like the App Store, Google's Android Store, you know, the Play Store, um, you know, th those companies might want to impose uh, limits on them and say, look, you know, you cannot be pasting stuff from the clipboard. You know, that's yeah. just ridiculous. Stop doing that. And, you know, by the way, you know, if you're going to be storing, you know, facial data or, you know, recording these videos, these are some standards we want you to meet. I mean, there's a lot of other levers besides for just some amorphous governmental ban that yeah. could be applied. And we just didn't really seemed like we explored any of that. And furthermore, whatever this ban that Trump has been proposing, there doesn't seem to be any legal framework within which to do that. I mean, I don't yeah. know what law. He also you know, wanted a commission on the sale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He wanted a cut, you know, he, piece of the vig on the, you know, on the deal, you know, so it's like. It's Once a, a real estate agent, Trump. always a real estate agent. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of a real estate mobster move, you know, so it's, um, you know, I, I think that, we really can evaluate this in a legal way. And I think we're going to need to think about this, but I would much rather see us pass laws that clearly define what it is we think we're talking about rather than just enact well, random amorphous bans on things. Yeah, but could it be a simple, let's let's play kind of the reverse of devil's advocate, the angel's advocate. Could it be just an overeager developer or them trying to capture a lot of data to improve their algorithm and they have no intention of, of exporting the data, somehow selling it or giving it to the government? Yeah, I think that that's entirely possible. And I think we should assume that that's probably the case, you know, sort of Occam's razor style. I think the danger is, you know, it, to the extent that that stuff is domiciled, you know, in China at some point, uh, which, you know, it's not clear even that that's the case, um, you know, then that, you know, they would have potential access to it if they wanted to get to it. But it's not clear that it's like, you know, it was built by Chinese intelligence or something like that. I'm not saying it's not. I just haven't seen any evidence of that. So. Yeah. And, and you did some really fascinating visualizations on these kind of networks of, of people on social media. Um, I think it would be great if you can talk a little bit about kind of what you're seeing more recently and how these connections and these conversations that live in these islands of social media, um, how they might be driving kind of real world effects, you know, both in politics and, and in, the, in the COVID world and misinformation there and, and all these things that you're seeing spinning out there. Kind of sure. In, yeah, actually, if it's okay, I can share a slide of one of these maps just to give you an idea of um, uh, what you're talking about here. Let me go ahead and do that. Um, Let's bring that in. There we go. So this is a map of uh, Puerto Rico, a uh, social map, not a geographic map. So each dot is a Twitter user and each line is a uh, um, friend connection between them. And then the size of the dots is uh, representing the number of followers uh, relative in the network. And then um, the colors are basically communities of like mind. So if you actually dig into these communities, you find that people sort themselves into fairly, um, you know, predictable uh, sectors in between different societies. So there's usually like a sports cluster and a techie cluster. And, you know, Puerto Rico seems to have more government stuff, uh, maybe not surprisingly. Radio, television, media is often in the center. Uh, this is like a bunch of club culture stuff here. Uh, these are all students from University of Puerto Rico, um, more students added in a different cohort 
um, because they had a couple of big spurts of uh, new Twitter users in Puerto Rico. This is another cohort. And then this is all, this always comes up. There's always some note of like one direction, Justin Bieber, you know, kind of people that <laughs> float around between different uh, networks. Pop, pop culture. A lot and of then, by the way, not to interrupt you, but uh, for the listeners of the audio version of this podcast, maybe you can quickly summarize uh, what this might look like on the screen for those watching. Yeah, sure. So what we've got is kind of a colorful array of, um, you know, different networks. It's sort of a network map with uh, different uh, clusters within the network that show different groups of people um, and then lots of overlap between them. But there is, you know, some uh, distinct uh, sorting and, and differentiation. So for instance, the people on the left, the orange group, that's mostly young students and whatnot, they have almost no connections to like the government uh, folks on the right. Um, so you start to ask questions like, well, why are these, there are these divisions in, in a given society and could we do things to try to bring those things closer together? And should we do those things? Um, is that something that would actually produce a beneficial outcome? So it's an interesting tool to understand just kind of how society sorts itself. And then as you do this kind of thing, you start to see how disinformation could be applied to different uh, audiences here to get different reactions out of them. And that's a lot of what was done with like Cambridge Analytica and the like. Yeah, and it seems like, um, you know, although nobody wants to be put into a group and be called a, um, you know, uh, be part of this uh, monolith, so to say, um, in reality, people's social networks on average are pretty much in these these social groups. They might be by race or by age or by uh, juxtaposition and reality is reality. And, and you have a lot of, um, you know, you, you, you do these brilliant uh, visualizations that are easy to follow. But behind the scenes, all the political pol uh, pollsters and all the pros uh, pushing things around ever since the Southern strategy in the US um, have probably noticed these effects and know how to kind of pull the strings, right? Yeah. And, you know, these kinds of artifacts come up in different ways. Um, you know, this is looking at it from a network map perspective, but, you know, that you do see these things demographically. You can get at these different slices by looking at even things like fashion. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you know that somebody wears a certain brand of sneaker, there's a pretty good chance that they're going to fall into some kind of sociometric kind of category. And so you'll be able to address them a certain way. So all these kinds of things that we kind of take for granted and also use as ways to express ourselves as people um, do, in fact, uh, you know, reveal uh, kind of like what uh, sociographic group, you know, we belong to. So very interesting stuff. Yeah. And then in March, uh, you upped a, a pretty impressive group of folks uh, to start looking at uh, the situation with COVID that was that became acute. And uh, quickly, a lot of the focus went, you know, and, and I was in, involved in the chats and I still kind of uh, read through and, and try to get a, a good, clear picture on, on all the research uh, being done. But from the perspective of information, I think you called it very early on and saw that this is going to become a, a, another dis and misinformation battlefield. And it really has become so very quickly uh, in this country, especially. Um, what have you seen kind of what can you say about how this information warfare has been applied to this COVID uh, topic. Yeah. So, you know, it's pretty well known at this point that anytime you have a major crisis, um, there's going to be a wave of misinformation and disinformation that follows it just because people are trying to get facts and there's a lot of incentive sometimes to spread, uh, you know, information that isn't true. Um, and it can also be, you know, a very fruitful field for, you know, really narrative battles and, um, advancing other things that are already in play. So in, in the United States where, you know, we already had a contentious 
political year uh, on tap, and then you add in this crazy, you know, giant public health thing that completely upends everybody's lives globally. You know, we knew that that was going to set the stage for a lot of um, crazy, you know, kind of stories to come out. So I would say that, you know, the, it's been kind of interesting to watch it evolve. In the first couple of months, um, you know, we saw just a lot of crazy stuff in terms of people talking about 5G being related to coronavirus and, um, you know, hydroxychloroquine and, you know, different kinds of folk remedies and, um, you know, just all of these different narratives that were coming out about, you know, um, masks or not masks and everything, um, you know, kind of conflating. Um, and what's been interesting from my perspective is that it actually has calmed down a little bit in that, um, you know, we've seen Twitter, Facebook, other platforms react fairly forcefully to take down medical misinformation where we can find it. There was the pandemic video, which came out in late yeah. April, which, uh, you know, went very viral before anybody even knew what it was. And, um, you know, that was a case where maybe we reacted a little bit too late, but we still kept it from getting too out of hand. And now what I'm seeing is that um, things that have been kind of in a similar vein have been intercepted uh, much sooner. And, and, you know, what we in this trade are calling it is sort of getting it before the boom, um, before it can have like a major societal effect yeah. and it creates a lot of disruption. So, you know, on the one hand, um, I think we're in much better shape than we were in 2016 uh, in terms of, you know, developing systems to intercept these things sooner versus later. But at the same time, there's still stuff that just gets through and, you know, you never really know what it's going to be because it's, it, it, it it doesn't necessarily even matter what the content is. It's just like whatever, whatever things can get through that are both virulent and also um, do not meet the standards of like the people looking for bad stuff uh, immediately. That's mm -hmm. the stuff that can get a foothold really, really quickly. And then you, you kind of have to spend another you know, week fighting it back after you, even you've taken it down and, and tried to deplatform it. And of course, you know, there are the conspiracy theorists who, are saying that, you know, because these things are deplatformed, that it's all, you know, a big conspiracy to, uh, you know, suppress people's speech and limit their medical treatments and whatever else. So, um, yeah, you know, I guess overall, I'm, I'm glad it's not worse than it is, but it's still pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, speaking of conspiracy theories, the ultimate one now is this, this uh, absurdistan that is QAnon. Yep. Um, and I was just thinking this morning that, you know, this is really perfect for this country, for these people that really want to believe this, that these kind of speculative bubbles, I think QAnon is kind of the speculative bubble, the Bitcoin equivalent of conspiracy theories, right? It's it's kind of the ultimate conspiracy theory, um, you know, and now it's, of course, at the top. Um and and RNC, you know, there are a bunch of people in RNC. Um, I think a couple of speakers are still on board that are a big part of this. Um, what are your thoughts on on that whole thing, and how do we get that under control and and out of the mainstream? Well, I think the first thing you, you have to start to do is to develop kind of a systems level understanding of what all this stuff actually is. So the first thing you have to kind of do is divorce yourself from the idea that like this is about, um, you know what people's actual beliefs are. This is about group identity and about belonging to a group or not belonging to a group. So in the case of, um, you know, like QAnon, um, what we've seen is that a lot of different conspiracy theories have kind of merged into one kind of like grand unified conspiracy theory to rule them all. And, um, you know, that's convenient in that it kind of acts as a catch-all basket that people can kind of, it's like a box full of Legos. You can kind of assemble it however you want to right. tell whatever story you want. But the main story that it tells 
And the, the main sort of group identity thing that, that comes with that stuff is that you do not believe the mainstream media narrative. You do not believe in, you know, science or reality or whatever the Democrats are saying or, you know, whatever. It's, it's this alternate reality of kind of saying, I opt out of all of this and I am going to withdraw into this world that, you know, is characterized by these other ideas, you know? And um, so I think that, you know, one of the things that we predicted when this whole pandemic thing started and everybody was in social isolation was that um, people were going to feel a, a real lack of connection to family, to community, uh, to each other, um, and that they were going to be hungering for things that gave them meaning and identity. Mm. And almost always that turns out to be things like conspiracy theories or cults. Um, and if you, if you really study cults, um, this is basically the same dynamics that we're going through. So cult studies have actually turned out to be very helpful in understanding this yeah. situation. And one of my friends that I'm talking to a lot right now is a guy named Steve Hassan, who is one of the leading experts on cults. Um, so, you know, the way people get sucked into cults is because, you know, they, they start to feel a connection with the people in the group, and then they start to feel less of a connection with their families. And they, you know, eventually kind of get right. sucked into the cult and away from their family and their other friends to the point where, you know, um, they start to see anybody that isn't in the cult as being kind of fundamentally evil and part of the problem. And so, you know, they then start to resent them, et cetera. And then the people that, you know, that are outside that want to retrieve like their loved ones from this toxic construct, um, you know, they're seen as the enemy when they go try to, you know, talk to them and that sort of thing. So, it's the exact same dynamics. So the good news is, is we kind of know what's going on from a sociology standpoint. The bad news is, is that typically with cults, you're talking about deprogramming a few people out of a you know few hundred group, few hundred person group. This is like deprogramming possibly tens of millions of people globally. Um, one researcher, a friend of mine, has traced uh, QAnon now into 71 countries. That was 10 wow. days ago, maybe. So it's probably into 100 countries by now. And it's, you know, all taking root in like local languages, local stories, local narratives, um, but tied into this sort of grand mythology of, you know, some kind of global pedophile elite doing whatever. And it's just, it's people becoming unhinged. And, you know, you want to say that they're crazy. The dangerous thing, though, is that they're not really that crazy. They're, they're people that maybe for whatever reason were susceptible to these kinds of messages and then started going down a rabbit hole. But they're not fundamentally, like, stupid, usually. They're not, um, you know, mentally ill in any kind of quantifiable way. They're, they're just susceptible. And, and we are, too. You know, there's stuff that that can catch us up and we all have to be susceptible you know, or, or careful that we're not pulled into these kinds of things. Um, and uh, you know, that we've got what my friend Steve likes to call freedom of mind, that we are actually in control of our own uh, faculties and judgments. Yeah. And then do you see, uh, I mean, certainly the foreign actors that are taking advantage to kind of just cause chaos uh, to normalize and, and use that kind of as a way to bring down U S or Western society in general, um, what have you seen kind of both on COVID and this QAnon thing? Have you seen a lot of push and pull from, from these foreign organized actors? Yeah, I mean, um, certainly, um, you know, there's been a lot of sort of shifting narratives from, you know, both Russia and China. China's sort of getting a little bit more aggressive about their disinfo game. They've backed off a little bit in the recent few weeks. But, um, uh, you know, they had traditionally been kind of more in the mode of, um, uh, you know, sort of advancing their own state interests and, you know, 
putting assets in place that would guarantee long-term competitive advantage. Russia has been much more of the mind to try to attack kind of the fabric of our society with the aims of destabilizing democracy. But China has been sort of playing in that game too, by helping to amplify some of these conspiracy theories. They put out conspiracy theories that are amplified conspiracy theories that said that, um, you know, like a U.S. serviceman in China was responsible for the spread of the virus and, you know, various kinds of things like that. So they're using this as a backdrop to, you know, amplify the tensions that exist, um, you know, in our culture already. And, you know, a lot of the stuff around um, the fact that, uh, you know, the virus is hitting predominantly people of color and lower income people here, you know, that's provided a rich context for them to, you know, further amplify um, you know, the kinds of racial divides that, that we've seen uh, previously. Um, but it's it's more or less a continuation of the 2016 playbook. And I think people might really, you know, misunderstand, you know, kind of the nature of this thing. It isn't so much about swaying the election uh, one way or the other, although I'm sure if they could, you know, sort of like spend X amount of money to achieve a specific result, they would. But it's more about driving this kind of cultish behavior, because the more that we're driven into these kind of cultish configurations, the less functional our democracy is, the less able we are to reach consensus and have actually reasoned debate about anything. So, um, you know, it's not about trying to get X number of votes. It's about trying to get a certain percentage of the population to kind of go off the deep end um, and to disengage. What's the, what's the goal? Well, to, you know, to get people to the point where they just really are demoralized and they don't right. think that, you know, there's any way to effectively self-govern. And, you know, what that ultimately does is it kind of, you know, makes people draw the judgment that, you know, the United States is not any better than, you know, what amounts to a criminal authoritarian regime like Russia is right now. Right. Um, and, you know, <laughs> if they can generate that, that equivalence, then it'll get us off their back. It will allow them to operate their criminal gangs with impunity and, you know, will generally make their lives a lot easier. And, um, you know, not, not only that, we won't be wagging their, our fingers at them, telling us, telling them that they don't have the moral high ground. So, you know, I can understand why they want to do this. I mean, it makes total sense. It's just, you know, it's not something we need to succumb to. And it's, you know, I think people are, are oversimplifying, you know, what the nature of their motives is. I, I think it really is about, you know, trying to make our country as crappy as possible. Right. I mean, do you think we'll ever get back to normal discourse? Let's say, let's say, I mean, we'll, we'll, I, I want to hear your predictions on the election in a second, but before we get there, let's say it does go well um, in, in the way that I think most viewers are, most of my listeners are, are thinking that uh, we get back to normal. We have politicians that can be respected again um, in power trying to you know improve the this country uh do you think that the media landscape is fixable or are we forever stuck on this kind of vector in this parallel universe of back to the future too uh where it's all bad and media is not respected and doesn't have a place in in kind of informing people anymore yeah i do think that things are going to get better um i think that you know, one of the things you, that has been f- interesting about this whole pandemic is that it's taught us all about, um, you know, virus math and all about, you know, uh, rates of transmission and stuff like that. So I keep thinking, like, if we can get this kind of cultish behavior, you know, sort of like the new recruits into QAnon and other kinds of nonsense points of view um, to have an RT value of 1.0 or less then we can start to get things back on track. And a huge amount of how we perceive the world and about how we 
you know, think things are going to be is kind of like what the current trend is. So right now, these conspiracy communities are growing and getting worse and more toxic. And we have all these news stories about people, you know, joining these things and getting involved in stupid stuff and, you know, family members that are getting pulled into it. So it seems like right now it's growing and getting worse, which I think makes people feel pretty bad. I think if we can start to get the RT value to 1.0 or less for these things and get them to shrink, then those things will start to seem more fringe and they'll seem more, um, you know, anathematized by uh, society as a whole. And, and that, I think, is going to give people this the sense that, like, things are moving in the right direction. Um, and I think that, you know, media tends to follow culture uh, for pretty closely. So, you know, we're going to, I think, you know, if we can get those kinds of numbers to start to come down, then we're going to start to see media kind of follow suit in terms of how they perceive this and cover it. Um, and I also think that there's a lot of substantial thoughtful work that's being done right now on how to curb, um, uh, you know, misinformation and disinformation. Like uh, I work with someone named Sarah Jane Turp, who has built a framework called Amit, uh, along with a lot of other thoughtful, you know, infosec people, you know, myself included. And um, it really includes an entire framework for identifying, stopping, curbing, you know, uh, fighting back against uh, these kinds of, of problems in society. And so, you know, it's kind of like anything, you know, you have to first identify the problem, you then have to build a solution tool chain to kind of, you know, figure out how to address it, you then have to implement it, there has to be economic incentives to do that, we may or may not have those right now, we may have to regulate. So this may take a little while. But um, I think that, you know, if we can sort of stop the bleeding right now in terms of, you know, uh, we have this ridiculous political culture right now that isn't informed by really anything. You know, there is no platform, as we saw this week. Right. Um, and, um, you know, if we can slow down some of this uh, radicalization processes in society, then things will move in the right direction and we can actually address this. It's just, you know, it's democracy. Are you positive that we can do this? Because, I mean, from my perspective, it seems like we're going down this black hole and it's and it's looking worse and worse every month. I don't know that we that we will, I think we potentially can. So I think there's reason to have hope in that regard, just that, you know, it should be possible, but again, a lot will hinge on, on November. So, yeah. And, um, before we get to that question and that set of predictions, um, do you think when, when, let's say realistically, maybe at the earliest, the uh, vaccination for COVID will come out, let's say early next year, or maybe mid next year, um, do you think, you know, what do you expect from kind of the information warfare standpoint of trying to talk people out of it? And, and do we have a chance of actually uh, getting enough people to take the vaccine to be effective? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's difficult to know, um, you know, exactly uh, how people are going to react to this. I mean, obviously, there's going to be a large number of people that are going to say, oh, I'm not going to take it. And you know, potentially have reasons why, but, you know, there will be an attempt to cast a lot of doubt on it by, um, you know, hostile actors. And we're going to have to try to combat that. Um, But at the same time, uh, you know, if we rush this thing, there may be very good reasons to have doubt about it. You know, like if, if for instance, uh, you know, I heard something today about Trump trying to accelerate the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine until like before the election. And I'm like, well, you know, first off, I don't know how you'd make that many or any number of a reasonable number of doses before then. But, um, you know, if that were to happen, I mean, you, you would want to have reasonable questions about that and what is this thing and is it potentially going to work or is it going to make people sick or, you know, we just don't know. 
So I, I think we're going to have to kind of temper our expectations a little bit on the timing side in order to build up, build up enough, um, you know, confidence that this will be a, an effective, uh, you know, treatment. Um, and then, you know, hopefully by like I, the most common answer I've heard from polling smart people right now is like Q2 of next year. Um, that seems possible. That seems, to me. that seems right. So about a year is probably the fastest ever, right? But there's yeah, you know, but at least that's like plausible. I I would say probably you know the the more outside uh, kind of prediction might be late next year or mid 2022. But you know who knows? I mean, we're we're flying blind right now. So yeah, yeah. We could probably do a whole different podcast on on uh, <laughs> the science behind all that. So uh, let, let's get to the $18 trillion question. Um, what are your predictions for the election? What are you seeing right now? And kind of compare it to the, the, the social, the media, the knowledge, the info space of 2016. Yeah, I mean, it's such a different landscape now with this whole, you know, uh, pandemic and voting by mail type scenario. It's, it's quite difficult to game out. And, you know, I know, you know, people like uh, Nate Silver, who, you know, sort of famously got it, quote unquote, wrong and 2016 have, you know, said right now that, you know, uh, Joe Biden's looking, you know, relatively stronger, but, you know, that could change at any time. And, you know, I think it's also important to recognize that, you know, neither Nate Silver nor many of the pollsters strictly got it wrong. They just, you know, they, the result landed within <laughs> the low probability chance that right. they gave Trump, you know, and, um, Statistics are not predictions, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think you have to kind of take all that stuff with a grain of salt. The thing that's been honestly on my mind with this, I think, you know, if it was a straight election under normal circumstances, Biden would probably win it because, you know, there were so many extenuating circumstances last time, not the least of which was people's extreme dislike of Hillary Clinton um, that, you know, I think led to that outcome, plus whatever manipulation may have happened. You know, who knows? You know, it was a very tight, uh, you know, uh, race in the end. This race, I think, could be just as tight. Um, I do think it probably favors Biden. But the thing that I think will be dangerous is how disinformation and narrative warfare were going to take hold in the uh, weeks following the actual election day. So a lot of reporters have cautioned to say, look, it's not we're not going to have the results on election day. It's going to be an election season. There's going to be votes coming in over the course of a number of weeks. We're not going to probably have a good sense of what the, the final answer is until you know late November, early December something like that. Um, and during that time, there are going to be pr predictions, uh, various kinds of assertions made by all sorts of people about what the outcome either is or is going to be. And then there's going to be narratives that develop around what the legitimacy of different aspects of the vote are. So I'm sure Trump is going to try to do something like say, well, you know, we know that the people that voted in person voted for me, which may or may not turn out to be true. That's just a, you know, a, a guess. Um, and then, you know, start to try to cast doubt on all of these, quote unquote, you know, shady mail-in ballots that are coming in from shady states like California, you know, and right. try, to, try to try to cast, um, you know, doubt on the entire process and make people believe that, um, you know, the election has been stolen. And, you know, we, we heard glimmers of that in 2016, that he was going to use that kind of a narrative strategy. So there's every reason to think he'll use it now. And certainly, you know, Russia would back a strategy like that and try to sow doubt and in people's minds around what actually happened. So I think that's kind of what we most have to be prepared for. And it will be a drag and we'll all just moan, burn through it because it's going to be horrible. But I mean, you know, the, well, best the case scary scenario, part was that in 2016, 16, he didn't even expect to win. He was just right. playing the game. And and now his motivation is to keep his 
his uh, family out of prison and himself as well for all these things that are being discovered every other day. Yep, exactly. Um, so he's so, much more motivated now than he yeah, was in 2016. Yeah. Um, at least in 2016, he could just go on and have Trump TV if he lost, you know. Now right. it's, it, it's a much bigger game. So, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, it's going to be very interesting. And um, I think that, you know, the most, the best case scenario would be some kind of just really clear, decisive uh, victory by Biden with, you know, no real opportunity for undermining that with some other narrative. But, yeah. you know, as we know, this is messy and we've got a huge, you know, fiasco on our hands with different states and their ballot procedures and the mail and everything else. So, you know, who knows how it's going to play out. Should be interesting. The one place where blockchain could actually be useful. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm fr good friends with this guy, Avi Rubin, who's like the leading expert on uh, election technology. And, uh, you know, his take on it is that there's really no way to do online voting if you want to preserve both security and anonymity. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, you kind of need both of those things. You know, it, on the security side, there's really no way to, to detect a man in the middle attack by a state actor. Mm -hmm. And then on the anonymity side, you know, you want to be able to, uh, you know, for sure say that you can't trace somebody's vote back to them and punish them for their vote. Um, and right now we can kind of do that with the system we have. It's not perfect, but it's, it more or less meets both of those goals. Anything online wouldn't even blockchain. So, yeah, well, um, I, I've really enjoyed, uh, learning from you as always, Dave. And I wanted to ask you one last question and kind of parting words for our audience. What can our audience do to fight the good battle on bullshit? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a definitely sort of all of population kind of effort. And I appreciate that people want to help. I think the first thing to do is to kind of understand the nature of the problem. It's not strictly about, you know, facts or that kind of thing. It's about, you know, this kind of group problem that we talked about and about how people want to identify with an in-group or an out-group. So, you know, try not to, to share stuff, you know, as much as sharing factual things is important. Try not to share stuff that's emotionally reactive, that's going to cause people to um, either, you know, like... Um, you know, to choose to not be friends with you, like block you or, um, you know, that is going to generate a, a highly emotional reaction because that's kind of the fuel of this process. And in, in the cases where you do find yourself disagreeing with people, I think it's important to try to find ways to build common ground with them that aren't maybe the contentious subject, but something else that either you do agree on or that, you know, try to play up the fact that, you know, hey, look, you know, we're family or, you know, um, try to engage on, on other interests that you may have. But, um, you know, this process of like losing touch with people over information that is produced by, you know, uh, bad faith actors trying to harm our society is not productive for us. And we are right. getting caught into it. And, you know, I also think that it's important to recognize that our current political setup is a little bit of a, you know, a live action role-playing game, if you will. Yeah. And all of the kind of parameters around what it means to be a Democrat and to be a Republican are very much generated by these cultural forces that are, um, you know, coming from our information landscape and, you know, if you are overreactive to those cues and you get a little bit too into the game, as it were, then you are being controlled. You know, you are not actually in, in full command of, of your, you know, free will and agency. So, you know, the, the one way to kind of stay above that is to kind of look at this whole thing as a system and to try to figure out how to get the outcome that you want, but not necessarily take on all of the you know, reactive identities that come with like being a Republican or a Democrat or whatever, just, 
try to try to make make get the outcome you want, but without becoming immersed in the in the drama of the the day to day machinations of the game, because it's that's what they want you to do. And as soon as you become too reactive, you become controllable. Um, there's a whole doctrine called reflexive control, where you can basically get people to do stuff by putting something in front of them that's going to re- make them react in a certain way. And if you become victim to that kind of reactivity, then, you know, you are no longer in charge. So I would just say try to try to stay above it, um, try to share stuff that's factual, try to maintain connections with lots of different kinds of people and weather the storm. Because it isn't going to be like this forever. It will be like this for a while. Yeah, kind of abstain and diffuse. Exactly. Yeah, just step back and look at the big picture. So. Yeah. And uh, I lied. Okay. One last question. So, (laughs) um, you know, one, one thing uh, I I always uh, enjoy talking to you and learning from you and, and uh, you know, there are a lot of people that uh, pick the topic du jour and then all of a sudden they're Facebook experts in, in certain things, but you are a true expert in a lot of these things and you've helped me understand a lot of these things and and a lot of people as well. Uh, My question to you is when are you going to run for office and, and and, and what are you going to (laughs) do? Cause that's, that's, yeah. You're, you're no, both amplified. Yeah, no, it's it's certainly come up. I mean, I, I've been pretty active in civics in Baltimore, and I'm actually going to be um, joining the transition team of a guy who just won um, the position of comptroller in Baltimore. Um, and I'm super big on audits um, because, you know, there's we have something like 55 agencies and departments in Baltimore, and most of them haven't been really substantively audited in many, many years. Um, and there's just so much that we can do in terms of best practice and that kind of thing. So, you know, we'll see where that kind of thing goes. Um, I personally feel like I can do a lot more sometimes by being kind of behind the scenes and being an advisor to people who, have, you know, are willing to go out and do things like win political contests because that's hard. And, yeah. you know, there's all kinds of factors that go into that. But um and I can do this kind of stuff over the course of 10, 12 years as where they may only get a four year shot at it, you know, so trying to have the longer term impact. But, you know, certainly I think, you know, being civically engaged right now is something that's really important. And we've, I think, told our you know citizens that, you know, voting is the most important thing you can do. And it, it is very important, but it's not necessarily the most important thing you can do. The most important thing you can do is to pay attention to the ongoing governance of your you know town, city, whatever. And um, be engaged in that because that's really where the you know nuts and bolts and the gears of uh, what goes on actually take place. The voting is just you know who's overseeing it in any given day. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. San Francisco is definitely off the rails as well these yeah. days. Yeah, and yeah, they probably need some people to get in and work on on the governance side. So, yeah, Dave. Again, I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for being with us here today. So again, this was Dave Troy. Uh, my good friend, uh, entrepreneur that does uh, does email-related technology as his day job, but is really into um, helping the world deal with misinformation, disinformation, and for, for all of us to get through this mess and, and come out a uh, stronger country, stronger world on the other side. So again, thanks, uh, Dave, for being with us, and thanks for checking out our show. Thanks a lot, Vitaly. See you next time.